most all of us are aware that uh, we have uh, announced the plans to be considering uh, two men for office, one for office of elder and deacon, and so it seemed appropriate to me to uh, plan the ministry of the word so that this evening we focus on qualifications for office of elder and next Lord's Day evening on office of deacon. One of my fears in that even announcing this um, uh, study on qualifications either for office of elder or deacon would to be think in terms, well, then this is a study that is not really about me. It's something that I don't really need to give uh, careful concern to. But I urge you to consider the a way that uh, Peter words uh, the, the overall approach of qualification that uh, the man of God is to be one who is an example to the flock. To take that to another step, to consider that uh, of all the qualifications that are listed there, it's, it's not like uh, the common people of God are to be like this. The moral virtues, the ethics for the common people of God would be here. And then the, those lists of characteristics that are desirable or required in either an elder or a deacon are over here and that they're altogether different. Isn't it true that all of the qualifications that are to be found in a man coming into office are characteristics that are held out to all of the people of God. So I hope that you won't be thinking in terms of, well, this study is for someone else. I trust that as we work through and if there is a pinch of conscience that is felt, there will be a, a prayer that ascends with it, Lord God, make me better. Lord God, conform me increasingly uh, to the image of your Son. And I also want to mention that this evening's study is uh, drawn from uh, Pastor Martin's study on the list of qualifications. I can't actually tell you at this point how much has come from him and how much uh, is uh, with a little bit of my own fingerprints uh, on this. Uh, but I, I trust that as we think of one who has been laboring for uh, decades counseling other churches on practical issues, uh, a man who for decades has been in pastor's conferences really around the world, and then uh, training theological students to the point where this material has been refined and published in a book, then you'd say, you know, I really wouldn't mind hearing a little bit of Pastor Martin's uh, perspective on these things. Well, how do we recognize a man for the office of elder? It, if I were traveling to uh, a new place or if I am traveling to uh, India and I will not be meeting the normal person who knows what I look like at the airport, it may be a smart thing for me to do to email a picture of my mug so that whoever comes to the airport and looks at the various people say, ah, oh, it's not him, not, not him, not him, not, okay, there he is, that they may easily recognize who I am. 
And what God has given us in the scriptures is uh, something like this. I don't think that we should think of it as a, uh, as a uh, color photo with uh, 12 megapixels of detail in it, but rather of sketches, sketches of character that are laid out for us so that we may all the more easy recognize those who are uh, appropriately coming into an office. Well, there are three passages uh, that we have already read, and in the first two of those passages, I want to draw attention to the fact that they have this little particle of necessity. They have these two words of must be. Now, this little word that comes into English in two words is used in Luke 24 and verse 44, well, where we read everything written about Christ in the law, uh, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what's the meaning of must be there? Well, there are all these details concerning Christ, and it's not like uh, all these details, we hope some of them will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. No, we expect that they all, uh, they must be fulfilled. It is compulsory. And it is uh, deeply troubling that m when many come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, to Titus 1, they read down through the list and they immediately begin thinking in terms not of must be, but it would be nice if. We don't want to have an unrealistic standard. And so instead of seeking to bring men along in grace up to the biblical standard, we, in turn, bring the biblical standard down uh, to where we can be able to stick some men into a place of office. Well, come with me to Roman numeral one, qualifications. Qualifications in First Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. And the first thing that we note is we're just looking down through the passage is there in verse 1, the language, if, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires. So right in verse 1, there are two words that deal with desire. The first has a sense of reaching for something, striving for something, and epithumia, the, the second term, I'm sorry, is one of a, a strong desire. So God gives uh, to his men something of a necessary requirement that he is wanting to come into office. We think of how uh, Peter says that you're, you're coming into this not uh, under compulsion, uh, not uh, where someone is constraining you. And, and maybe a man does not desire the office, but they desire the work of teaching the Word of God, of being involved with the people of God, and helping the people in the church uh, to grow. So there's something of the desire. 
And then just to uh, draw attention to that uh, language there in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And there's where we see those critical little words, must be. It's not nice if it would be there, um, but it is must be. Not in the process of becoming, but he must be at the point where he's being installed into meeting this list of qualifications. Now, having said those couple of things by way of introduction, um, I'm going to now number mine Uh, comments here on the qualifications, let's see, in working through uh, Timothy's, uh, I think I get up to 12 uh, categories here. Number one, above reproach or blameless. And and for this, think of an umbrella concept. Uh, Blameless doesn't mean perfect, but it, it means in the overall life, this overarching uh, characteristic that there's not something that stands out. Oh, you're thinking about this guy who's got that in his life, that which needs to be addressed right now. Uh, it, it's above reproach, blameless, not in the sense of perfection, but here is a man who is growing in grace and a man who, though he has sin in his life, is seeking to address that sin biblically. He is confessing his sin, he is forsaking it, and there is an observable growth in grace. The blameless man is one who has no glaring sin in his life. But then for me, a little number two, a husband of one wife, as it is there in the Uh, ESV, I believe the New American Standard, is going to have a one-woman man. And this is a characteristic, a requirement in a man that has um, uh, involved a lot of controversy and a lot of different views. There are various interpretations. Uh, George Knight III lists out that these, these are the four views. It's require one woman man requires that a man be married. Number two, uh, that he have only one wife in his entire life, even if he's uh, been a a widower. Uh, That he be monogamous and he not be in a polygamous relationship. Well, that is a real application in certain places in Africa today and certain places uh, out uh, in the past in history. Or fourthly, to be faithful in the marital and sexual realm. And that's where uh, this Dr. George Knight III uh, puts the emphasis. And he argues against the first view of simply to be married, that it would be doubtful that uh, Paul is putting a requirement there uh, that would rule out the Apostle Paul and rule out the Lord Jesus and rule out uh, such characters in history as Robert Murray uh, McShane. Uh, He argues against the second view uh, based on what Paul has said said elsewhere that uh, one who's 
um, in 1 Corinthians 7, someone who is uh, divorced due to no fault of their own, the, the other party uh, goes away, they are free to be married, or that the, uh, the widow or widower is free to be married only uh, in the Lord. Uh, regarding the third view, yes, polygamy is, is ruled out, but there's surely something more uh, that is involved. And this uh, fourth view that I think is the right view is that this statement is requiring a monogamous marital relationship. It's, it's kind of like one woman man is kind of like you shall not commit adultery. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. It comes to us in marriage terms, but it's a very broad concept. And so this one-woman man is a marriage term concept, but it branches out into uh, a number of different practical areas. Um, Theodore, one of the early uh, church fathers, uh, Theodore of Mopsuesia, uh, says a man who has contracted a monogamous relationship and is faithful to his marriage vows, excluding alike polygamy and any other promiscuous indulgence. Paul is referring to a man who cherishes his wife exclusively in the sacred marriage covenant and enjoys that lifelong companionship. And it's interesting that uh, those versions that tend to go a little bit more to paraphrase, a little bit of dynamic equivalence as, uh, as opposed to word-for-word equivalence, uh, such as the NIV has faithful to his wife. And it teaches us this broad uh, concept. And so there's the umbrella concept uh, that uh, must be blameless. And then if you think of this umbrella out there on your, uh, your deck or your, your porch, and then underneath it is the table, then we're going to see various of these gifts or various of these characteristics on the table, and the first is a one-woman man. And then uh, for me, number three, uh, that there be a man who is uh, temperate, um, sober-minded, uh, and self-controlled. Two words here brought together, the sober-minded and the self-controlled. Uh, these are words uh, that are worthy of careful study uh, in the interest of time will simply draw attention uh, that there is a carefulness to the way that the man thinks and a carefulness about the way that a man acts, uh, uh, prudent in his thinking and self-controlled in his action. And then for me, a number four, respectable. And this is the word kosmios, kosmios in the Greek. It's a word that is drawn from the universe, the cosmos. It's a word uh, that you ladies uh, get your cosmetic from. Uh, cosmetics are something that you do to adorn yourself, to make yourself uh, look pretty. And that's the way God's universe is. It is adorned. 
it, it is well put together. And so when we're thinking of a man, we're looking for a man who is respectable in the sense that things are put together in an appropriate way uh, in his life. This is the term that I think of uh, regarding myself when I walk out into my garage and I cannot hardly find my way through my garage. Now, thankfully, there are two cars that presently go in the garage every night, so there is some measure of order that is there, but I would not draw your attention to the workbench up in front of one of those cars. Cosmion, this respectable, this general orderliness in a man's life. Then fifthly, he must also be a man known for showing hospitality, a, a love for those maybe that he doesn't even know that breaks out in a concern to welcome uh, into a home environment. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that there has to be hospitality in the home. I recently was talking to a, a pastor whose uh, wife is, is not well, and so the way he does this is in breakfasts and lunches and, and so on, but still the, the heart desire of, um, uh, of ministering to people uh, comes out. Number six, an aptitude to teach an aptitude to teach. Perhaps if there's any uh, area that the individual Christian could say, well, this is not a characteristic or standard for me, well, then I grant that. We ought to desire to have some sort of ability to teach, but it's not on the same necessity level as uh, the others for an individual Christian. It is not saying that every man who comes into office must have the gifts of Charles Spurgeon to be able to publicly minister. Uh, some men are going to live this out much more in private counsel, but still even in private counsel, there's a hearing of the problem, there's a recognizing of the scriptural medicine that needs to come, there's the ability to get the scriptural medicine out of the mind or out of the scriptures and into the ears and heart of another individual, apt to teach, aptitude to teach. And then the seventh is what I found in the ESV is not a drunkard, no American standard, not addicted to wine, and I think that's fairly evident, self-evident. Number eight, listen to this little trio here together. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Uh, the elder is likely, if he has anything like uh, something of my experience, there will be times coming into a home where uh, husband and wife are not exactly demonstrating agape love to one another. And there is the need for the man to be able to absorb things and to be able to uh, defuse a situation. That's not a kind of situation to put a violent or quarrelsome individual in. Not violent, but gentle. And then number nine for me, not a lover of money. 
not a lover of money or free from the love of money. He must not be one who is uh, focusing on the ministry uh, for wealth. And the issue here is the heart motivation of a man. Why is he doing this? For something primarily that he can get out of it? Uh, And uh, Peter's going to pick this up in a parallel, different wording, but not fond of sordid gain. I don't think that's probably one of the uh, more recent translations, but it, it shows at least the parallel. We all know that there are worse case scenarios where someone has been in the ministry, but the whole desire has been to take advantage of the people of God. And for some examples coming to my mind, where stealing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars uh, from church. And the one situation I'm thinking of, uh, maybe close to $100,000 being stolen from the church. And another one, it was in the neighborhood, I think, of uh, $300,000 or more. He had, a, he had a good gig going until he got caught and ended up going uh, to prison. And then for me, uh, number 10, this is verses 4 and 5, the list returns to family issues. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care uh, for God's church? How a man interacts And some of the difficulties there in his own hope is going to be a microcosm of how he may interact in the larger sphere of uh, the church. Number 11, now verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3. Uh, It's more of a a self-evident requirement, not uh, requiring a lot of uh, explanation. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. For someone who is relatively new to the Christian life, relatively new to any responsibilities of kind of being up front, there is a danger of it going to their head and they're being puffed up uh, like uh, the devil. Uh, Then for me, number 12 And he must be well thought of by outsiders. He buttresses uh, this with a warning so that he not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And the church is wise to to get a sense not only of what these people within the the church think, but as well uh, what uh, what are the thinking Uh, of others that know him in non-church, non-Sunday settings. Roman numeral two, the qualifications of Titus 1, 5 to 9. Now, uh, we come to Titus 1, and we recognize that here is a second list by the Apostle Paul. Both of these lists are given under inspiration of the Spirit, And they are not a mirror image of one another. What Paul says in Titus has nuances that are different from what he says in Timothy. And so it is both ways. Uh, My little number one, 
Patrick Fairbairn's helpful observation, he must not be a recent convert, is not stated in Titus's list. And he suggests that the churches in Ephesus where Timothy is ministering, those have been in existence for maybe 10 years longer than the churches there at Crete, and so we need to have someone coming in from Crete, but that's not going to be the same emphasis. And then we'll start with uh, number two as we come actually into the list. It's a requirement of being blameless or above reproach. It's actually two different Greek words. They're basically synonymous, uh, but uh, they're different words than what would be used in First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. But again, it's the umbrella concept. There's, when you look at the man from a distance, there's uh, no uh, glaring uh, inconsistencies, no major faults that are standing out that at the moment are calling for someone, please come and rebuke this, please come and address this uh, problem. So we should consider these two lists, Titus and Timothy, as having specimens of the principal graces to be included uh, in the description of blameless Christian character. For me, a little number three. The passages are complementary. They are consistent with one another, and they must be used in tandem. Let me draw attention to just a couple of things that, are, uh, that stood out to me in verse 7, God's steward, um, God's butler, one who is in the house, something of a house administrator, um, th that's worthy of consideration. Uh, and then in verse 7, uh, there is the language of uh, not quick-tempered or not prone to anger, uh, to anger, not soon uh, angry. And again, you can see how that parallels concepts found there in First Timothy. And then we'll come finally, Roman numeral three, uh, to the qualifications uh, found in Peter's writing in Peter uh, chapter five, uh, verses one uh, through five. And here, Peter is charging elders in the churches throughout Asia Minor. Uh, he is underscoring clear aspects of character, but he's doing so in a way that is different from what Paul has said, either in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in uh, Titus uh, chapter 1. And the figure that he uses and carries throughout this is that there is to be a shepherd caring for the sheep. Uh, he talks of the chief shepherd, uh, the Lord Jesus. He says that uh, he, um, uh, Peter, comes as a fellow elder and, um, uh, and identifies with them, urging them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then he goes into three couplets. Notice how these fit together. Uh, these three couplets, the first is not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And then the next couplet is 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly dealing with the whole matter of motivation. And then the third couplet, not lording it over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So let's look at these in a little more detail. The first couplet, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. If there's one word in that phrase that we could circle and highlight, it's the word willingly. We do not want someone coming into office who is constrained to come into office. Uh, it may be that other individuals in the church are constraining an individual to do this. Maybe there is a, um, a, a believing mother uh, who is generally godly, but in this regard is exerting undue pressure on her son that he needs to be in the ministry. Well, no, it's not under compulsion, but willingly. And we think back to how uh, Paul wrote to Timothy about that one who is reaching for this, this one who has a strong desire for the work, not for the honor, not for the position, but for the work of uh, the office. And an existing eldership, they may say to a man, we think you ought to do this, but there must be more. It's not under compulsion, but willingly. This is a work. It's a hard work. It's a work that a man must be willing to take up when nobody else is looking. Not under compulsion, but willingly. And then the second couplet, let's try to pick out a key word in this one. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It would appear that what is being highlighted in this couplet is, with the, is the same matter of uh, the motivation. Uh, in uh, Timothy, it is not a lover of money. Don't come into it for the profit motive, but there must be a desire to help people, to help them in their lives, to try and bring spiritual medicine to them and direct them in a better way. Uh, there is a mind that is uh, suffused with love for others, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then for the third couplet, not lording it over those in your charge, but being examples. And if the earlier phrases deal with something of the motivation, why you want to do it, this one is talking about more of how you do the work. And it's not coming in to someone and saying, this is what you must do, lording it over them. Or perhaps requiring something of sheep that the man does not even do himself. Uh, but if there is a key word or two key words in this phrase, what would it be? Not lording it over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Those that I highlight are being examples. This is how it is to be done. And I think that we learn from this, this, this broad concept, that 
whatever the people of God are required to be, they ought to be able to look uh, to this pastor, to this elder, to this shepherd, and see that there is some modicum of example that is being uh, lived out. Everything which I call you to be and do from Scripture in thought, life, and relationships is, sort of, is supported by my example to demonstrate what these things look like. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then a couple more passages to underscore that. Paul wrote to the Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Philippians 3 and verse 17. And then to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 12. Uh, Paul could say to him, Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, Impurity. There may be some that are older will look at a younger man and despise him for his youth. And Timothy's only thing that he can do is to live in a godly way and manifest a godly example uh, for them. So here is uh, something of a picture of these uh, biblically qualified uh, elders. And now from some observations from John Owen regarding the qualifications of elders. And Dr. Owen asked, what is required for the constitution of an elder, a pastor, or teacher in the church? And he answers, number one, he must be furnished with the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the upbuilding of the church and for the evangelical discharge of the work of ministry. Number two, there must be a blameless character and holiness of life that is in them previously, previous to their ordination. Third, it is required that such a person have a willing mind to give himself up to this work. Fourthly, Owen says, there must be an election to office, some sort of process of voting by the congregation where the congregation says, we want this man to be in this office. And without some sort of voting by the congregation, recognizing by the congregation, he says it is an irregular and defective call. And then after the vote follows the solemn setting apart of the man by ordination, by imposition of hands and prayer and fasting. Well, Pastor Martin shares that many, many years ago when they were, this is going back to the 1960s, when they were thinking in terms of starting their own a church, having come out of the denomination, that it was during this time he was studying all the, the requirements, looking at them, and he was experiencing the exhilaration which comes from a, a fresh discovery of truth. This is what God has said, and it must be, and it must be. 
And he talked to one of his spiritual advisors, just bubbling out all of this enthusiasm for seeing these things in the scriptures. And he says, we have a clear standard in God's word, especially these passages in Timothy and Titus. And then the older man said to Pastor Martin, oh no, no, Al, be careful. Those passages set forth the ideal. If you take them literally, you're never going to have any elders or deacons. And he sought to process that counsel through along with what he was reading and came to say, Lord, you've given your word and by your grace, we are prepared to stand by it and submit to it. As things developed, it was a thrill to see how the newly constituted church was determined to take these passages at face value. We then had a solemn meeting in which Pastor Dixon and I were thoroughly examined by those passages and were recognized unanimously as Christ's gift to that newly constituted church. Three other men were recognized as Christ's gifts to serve as deacons. And by the grace of God, those standards have not been theoretically held in the wings, but have served to determine who entered office in Trinity Baptist Church. Well, if we come to look at these passages, then I trust that we will have a sense that God is speaking to us. And if God says that these, a man who's going to be, can be a deacon must be, that an elder must be, and then we respond by saying, well, no, that really doesn't matter so much. God is saying must be, and we're saying no. Then we end up putting someone in office against the will of God. And what sense does that make? To put someone in office that Jesus is not giving us the photo for, not giving us the sketch for. Do we expect that God is going to bless men in office that he has not really called into office? And then there's this valuable section about avoiding extremes, and I want to close with that this evening. And the first of avoiding extremes is to counsel against an irresponsible, unrealistic, simplistic literalism in applying the biblical standard. Now, I can be relatively confident that's coming from Albert N. and is, does not have my fingerprints on it very much at all. Uh, a, a wooden literalism. Blameless does not mean sinless. It means that a man has biblical, ethical, moral integrity, and no sin could be brought before him for which he can justly be called to repent. He doesn't have an ongoing controversy with God. The second of avoiding extremes, of avoiding a wooden literalism. Some take the language of a one-woman man and say that uh, this means that uh, it's referring to a man who has never been divorced. Others take it further. 
And this is referring to uh, a man who uh, came into his marriage a virgin, and this and, and just and this wooden literalism. Um, I remember talking to a man, formerly a member of this church back some probably three decades ago. And I remember in going through the conversation with him uh, that I brought out all of my commentaries that I had, and I don't know how many there were, but there were 15 or 20 commentaries I had stacked up. I photocopied this section of what each of these good uh, men from the past would say on the passage, and none took this man's view. So he was immediately convinced. Nah, not so much. There can be strongly held opinions that, well, this is what the Bible says in a wooden, literal way, and it has no place in a responsible handling of the Scriptures. And then there is, in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, this is a third of avoiding extremes, where there is the use of the word, it's translated in the um, uh, ESV as having children that believe. Um, some take that in the sense that having children that believe, uh, have faith. It's a, it's a broad term. It can either mean children that are faithful or it's uh, referring to those who have actually believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they go on to, uh, uh, Paul goes on to say in Titus 1 and verse 6, uh, above reproach, husband and one wife, his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, a wasteful extravagance or the opposition to what we heard this morning of Hupotasso, of finding their place uh, in uh, society. And there are uh, a number of men uh, serving in our sister churches that have at least one child that is not converted. One I think of has one who is a believer and three uh, that are not. It's talking more about the character of the man and the home and the spirituality of the home and uh, how that leads to some sort of proven results. A fourth area of avoiding extremes and this is that uh, for a one-woman man, that the man must be married and have a child in order to qualify as an elder. We've already talked about this a little bit. But if this were the requirement, then Jesus could not be your elder, and Paul could not be your elder, and Robert Murray McShane should never have been a pastor, and David Brainerd could not be your pastor as well. These men were single. Uh, there is a broad principle here. Think again in terms that the list of qualifications, there, uh, none of them, none of the three are exactly the same. And then uh, another example of an illegitimate use of the biblical standard is to take able to teach, an aptitude to teach, the apt to teach, 
and say that the man must be a proven and accomplished uh, preacher. And that's simply not what the passage has to say. Well, as we uh, close this evening, I want us to think in terms of uh, there is, on the one hand, the, the, the proper path, the proper road, the railroad tracks that we need to be on. And the devil would like to get churches to be indifferent to this standard. Oh, we don't really care about the standard. We're just going to plug somebody. If somebody's willing to do this, well, fine, let them do it. And then on the other hand is coming up with something of this wooden literalism to the point that there is an unattainable standard. And we want neither of those, neither ditch. We want to be able to go down through the center. The fact that the qualifications in Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5 are not carbon copies of each other indicates that these things are not like the specifications of thousands of an inch tolerance. And when a man has completed his piece, puts his electronic micrometer on it, and measures four ten thousandths of an inch beyond the margin, well, then it goes into the trash or the recycle bin. God has not given us that kind of a standard. We need to apply his standard and implement it with spiritual wisdom and good sanctified sense. Well, may God bless this consideration of his word to all of us, whether we are church members looking on, whether we are uh, those applying these principles to our own lives or for men who are potentially aspiring uh, to be an influential leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you for how you uh, lead us and direct us. You tell us that a well-ordered church is going to have a plurality of deacons and going to have a plurality of elders. And Lord, this is very much what we want. We pray that you'll give us wisdom and grace, that you'll give us practical help in seeking to take these biblical principles and applying them uh, to the men that we are uh, considering uh, at this time. Father, lead us and guide us. Uh, give us a unanimity of perspective. And we would pray that for all listening in uh, that uh, were not being considered for an office, that yet there would be a desire uh, to have these characteristics molded into our lives by your gracious ministry to us, O Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.